Um, so um, uh, we kind of dripped up the rundown for this because uh, we're 12 days in. Uh, yesterday alone, uh, we pissed off the Prime Minister of Australia. We offered to send troops to Mexico, threw a shot across the bow of Iran, threatened the nuclear option in the Supreme Court, floated radical new policies on gun control and discrimination. Uh, and that was like 12 hours. Yeah. So, you know, you guys always ask people on the podcast, how you feeling? I'll start with, what the fuck? Yeah, it's fine. Things are fine. Don't worry about it. I'm looking forward to our two-front war with Australia and Mexico. <laughs> I always thought we'd be here a couple weeks into the Trump presidency. Yeah, Australia's more of a naval thing. <laughs> oh, I love it. Mike? I need a mic. Oh, there we go. Uh, there we go. Oh, my God, that's so much gotta, better. I love sure attention. I want to make sure you can hear me. Um, yeah, I mean, fighting Australia won't be that hard. We'll have the <laughs> element of surprise. Um, I mean, what are they going to do? Throw some poisonous spiders at us? We'll win that war. <laughs> no, it's bad. It's, <laughs> things are very bad. We, we prepared um, our outline for the podcast today, and we were going to talk all about Trump's Supreme Court nominee. And Dan Pfeiffer sent me the outline yesterday afternoon and was like, I, I'm, I, I'm tempting fate here by sending this early because we may have to change it all. And sure enough, like within hours, the Australian news comes out, the Mexico news comes out, the Reuters story about the botched mission in Yemen comes out. I mean, it's just, it is one thing after another. And, um, you know, the tough, I think the challenge of all this is figuring out um, what to fight back on, how to fight back on it, and not to be overwhelmed by the news of the day every single day so that we're just numbed by it, you know? And but what, what do we make of it? Like, what, why is this happening? You guys have worked in the White House. It, there, there's a massive federal bureaucracy behind all of this. Like, what's going on? I mean, we elected a dotty old racist president, and it's causing a lot of problems. Yeah, but it's not just it, <laughs> in, incompetence. I mean, it's sheer incompetence, right? And that goes beyond any specific ideology, right? Like we, and I think a lot of us warned during the campaign, I mean, we've been in the White House, and like when you elect people with not only no experience in government, but um, no intellectual curiosity, no desire to try to run a process, no ability to, you know, it's one thing if you're an outsider, who comes into the White House, that, that was certainly the case with Barack Obama, it was the case with Bill Clinton, to an extent it was the case with George W. Bush. Um, when you can't even fill the positions in government with competent people, and you're putting like Steve Bannon in charge of national security and people like that, like you're going to run into problems. Yeah, you know? I mean, there's a vicious circle, which is Donald Trump ran a very uh, mean-spirited, vicious, you know, I would say racist campaign. Um, that repelled a lot of competent, reasonable conservatives from working with him and attracted a bunch of, you know, campaign rejects, idiots, goons. and goons. goons. Um, Lots of goons. And those are the people filling the government. I mean, look, you know, you look at what happens with this executive order on immigration, and it's two things at once. Once it's a sort of an ideological, um, uh, it's like an ideological vanguard of the kind of thing they're going to try to do in the next few years, which is restrict Muslim immigration, use Muslims as a scapegoat. But at the same time, it's written by a 32-year-old uh, a kid from Santa Monica who thinks he has all the answers and no one's smart enough or reasonable enough or trusting of the government enough around him to say, hey, you should put this through the Office of Legal Counsel. You should let other agencies vet this. And so not only is it a kind of evil thing, it's also a deeply incompetent effort. And so you end up putting this power in the hands of local immigration officials to decide, am I supposed to enforce this? Does it apply to green cards? Who do I listen to? Do I listen to the court? Do I listen to my boss in Washington? And it creates uh, chaos. So g given that the GOP controls both houses of Congress, wh where's the bulwark? Where does that come from? How, I was going to say, the bigger problem here is we wouldn't be 
in a lot of this mess if it was if we had a Democratic Congress right now, or if we had a Republican Congress that exercised you know its oversight responsibility or actually acted as a check on the executive. You have a Republican Party right now. Um, and particularly Republicans in Congress who are more afraid of a primary challenge from some Trump supporter and losing Trump votes uh, than they are of what Trump might do to the country. And so you see very few Republicans speaking out, or if they do, you get these like mealy mouth statements, right? Um, because a lot of them, like Paul Ryan, you know, they want, they probably don't agree personally with a lot of what Donald Trump's doing, but man, they want their tax cuts, you know? So they're just gonna yeah, but, stay along for the ride. Um, yeah, but I find myself unsure of, who to, of, of what to do with my extra Trump outrage. I try to put it at Paul Ryan's doorstep because what a sleazy enabler of this horror show. That, I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine <laughs> if Hillary Clinton had been elected and she's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna keep running my foundation. Not only that, like if you give the foundation money, you can like come and have a meeting with, my, with, with Chelsea and take a picture uh, and like, you know, Chelsea, go on vacation. Chelsea, who's gonna be my senior advisor in an office next to the Oval. Yeah, right, and, and, uh, and, and Chelsea's husband, like he's my top guy. He's in National Security Council now. I kicked out all the generals. Paul Ryan would be on fire. Marco Rubio would be around. We'd hear from him. He'd show up. Marcus Rubenstein. Marcus Rubenstein in the Witness Protection Program. You guys would be selling milk cartons as part of Crooked Media. Unbelievable. These people. That's a good idea. We're in real trouble here, guys. And they're letting us down. So look, at some point, you imagine that something's going to happen where they grow a spine, where that fear of being primaried is overtaken by something. Is that from the business community, to Mark's point, is that these protests look more white than they do brown, and that, that, that makes them crazy. That's not growing a spine. That's being afraid of a new and better class of person. Um, and I think that, like, that's what's going to have to happen. I mean, look, one of the things that's actually been inspiring in just these first 10 days, it's almost like a physics, it's an equal and opposite reaction. Three million people showing up for the Women's March, uh, people having a new habit of protest and showing up to protest at airports. It's making a difference. I mean, Susan Collins, uh, Murkowski in Alaska have said they're voting against Betsy uh, DeVos, DeVos, who cares? DeVos. She, oh, she loses. And, uh, but um, that's a big deal, right? They wouldn't be doing that if it weren't for their phone calls. They said that, they admitted that yeah. it's constituent calls that are doing it, so this I, stuff works. It's also, by the way, taking the media spotlight away from Trump for the first time, right? Like this man commands the cameras, but I think all of these protests are the, it's the one, it's the first thing we've seen that takes the camera off Trump and that's what gets him so, uh, so worked out. And Trump is very adept at choosing his villains, right? He'll talk about Chuck Schumer crying, but you notice he's not saying very many negative things about the protest because he, because he's ultimately a, a, a coward and he not, he's not going to pick a fight with three million people that have the bodies on their side. But you, you mentioned the business community too. I do think that, um, especially in the tech community, um, people, these leaders have an obligation to speak out, especially on this immigration, on these immigration issues, right? I mean, look, there is a debate to be had in this country about how much immigration we should have and how to balance that with respect for the law and we're a nation of immigrants and we've had these debates for decades and decades and decades. This is something entirely different. What Mark was just saying about someone afraid to get on a plane to come down here because of what he's done, like, if you, I would say if you are a business leader, you have to know where your line is, right? Like, I know there's a lot that's going on in the business community to say, well, if I could get Trump's ear and I can work with him on regulations or I can work with him on, you know, on climate or other things, then maybe it's worth keeping an open line to the White House. Maybe it's worth going to these meetings. But I would, you know, at some point you have to ask yourself, when do I say no? What is enough for me to step off this advisory council? What is enough for me to speak out and, and go against the White House? Because, you know, we're almost there two weeks in. And, you know, <laughs> This is, 
even Rudy Giuliani sort of gave up the game when he went on Fox News and he's like, President Trump told me, he's like, how can I do a Muslim ban legally? Uh, and <laughs> Rudy Giuliani, man, that guy lost the thread. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but Not helpful. It's, it's fantastic that Rudy Giuliani wants to go on television and he's just so excited that people are still calling him. So he just can't help it. He's like, look, I can't believe they're talking to me. Um, but anyway, this is what's, what they're gonna do, right? They're gonna set these new lines and, and they're gonna drag us over them little by little till all of a sudden we're in a totally new place. And um, we just can't let that happen. You know, Donald Trump is a bit of a savant here. You know, when he says, oh, three million, three million illegals voted illegally uh, in this election, that's why Hillary won the popular vote. That's stupid, but it's also letting us know something, which is that they plan on doing a massive voter suppression effort. When they put out an EO on Friday night that causes chaos across airports of the country uh, and then pull back the green card part because obviously that's completely illegal and ridiculous, but leave the rest in and leave, the open, leave open the possibility of banning more people in the future, that's letting us know something. It's letting us know that they have plans, right? You know, Donald Trump uh, doesn't, is not playing chess. Uh, I don't think he could successfully complete a game of checkers, but, but people around him are playing chess. I mean, like Steve Bannon, um, you know, he's got, he's got his eye on a long-term prize. You know, it was Black History Month and Donald Trump gave a rambling, insane speech in which he thought Frederick Douglass was a guy, I think, that worked for him. Um, but, uh, uh... Is he in the mess? Yeah, I think he's like, <laughs> I love Frederick Douglass. He's that movie, American President. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, the thing he opened that speech was by saying, next time we're gonna get 51%, we're gonna get 51%. Donald Trump doesn't say things unless somebody had him thinking about it five seconds before. He's already thinking about his reelection. He's thinking about how he can alienate enough people and motivate enough people. And we just have to be aware that even though he's a buffoon and ridiculous, uh, his administration is not. Let's go back to the business question for one minute, because sure. we've seen this incredible groundswell. I mean, we were both at LAX on Saturday night. Yeah. There are people were here. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I just took a selfie and then left. Well, I but, just want people to think I was there. But it was a damn good selfie. Oh, no, I look good. Yeah, you, you know, look great. Fight the power. So, so, it's all so, about the mentions, guys. It's all so about when, the Twitter mentions. When it, when it comes to um, uh, the, the CEOs being pressured, some of that presumably has got to come from the employee base, right? So is there a way to use this energy, this movement, to push up to the business leaders to say, you you got to take a stand. Yeah, I mean, if you if you work at one of these companies, then you should, yeah, you should you should say something. Um, and I think they respond to it. And I think I think part of the reason some of these business leaders are already responding is not just the employee base, but their customer base, right? I mean, that is a serious pressure point for a lot of these companies. Yeah, I mean, I just these protests, um, also these things like delete Uber, um, they're effective. They're effective because we have a way of reaching millions of people very quickly. I mean, the media was not was not predicting and not really paying enough attention to the fact that millions of people were gonna turn out on the day after the president's inaugural. They knew it would be big, they didn't know how big. Um, uh, people are, are, are angry, they're enraged, they're doing things they never did before. People are protesting who never went to protest. I would not have gone to LAX on a Saturday night. Even for a flight. Yeah, I try to avoid it. Yeah. Burbank, what are we doing? So, so, <laughs> so you know, we, we can go to LAX and protest, we can talk to our CEOs and business leaders, but, you know, and by the way, and the point of the phone call is Diane Feinstein, she's she got 55,000 calls on sessions, and all of a sudden she finally takes a, a strong stand right. on sessions. Yeah. You live in California, you live in New York, what else can you be doing? Because, I mean, the, the single biggest thing when I said, what, what should I ask you guys is, what, what do we do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the single most important objective now is to win the House back in 2018. Um, and I think, look, the Senate is a, is a very tough map. Um, there's two Republican senators up for re-election that, uh, speaking of 
things you can do from California, Jeff Flake in Arizona, Dean Heller in Nevada, are both probably the most vulnerable Republican senators. So we need to run some good Democratic candidates against them, and then you know you go help out in Arizona and Nevada. Um, but in the House, Democrats need 24 seats. And um, you know, there's a couple organizations out there now where you can go and figure out what's the closest swing district to you. Swingleft.org is one. Um, and look, there's there's a there's a but there's like 20, 24, 27 districts where Hillary Clinton won the district, but there's a Republican sitting in that seat right now. And so that's probably like your first line of vulnerable seats that we could win back in, in, in 2018. So I think we have to start organizing for that now. And I think the protest should move from the airports to uh, outside these members' offices, right? And, and that matters because look, when we were, we were in the White House in 2009 and when Obama tried to pass the Affordable Care Act, we dealt with three months in the summer of 2009 of Tea Party protests. And that yeah. stuff works. I mean, you, you, know? could ar you could argue that the Obamacare's popularity didn't recover from those events until now. Yeah. Until literally right now. I mean, yeah, we're, another, another sort of ray of hope here. Um, Obamacare, repeal and replace, repeal and replace. We've heard it for seven years. All of a sudden it's like repeal and maybe we'll take a look at it. Maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe don't repeal, maybe just a little bit. You know, so they don't know what they're doing. They're afraid to repeal this thing now because there's millions of people who are gonna lose their insurance. Those protests are already making a difference. Um, but yeah, I think it's about winning the house. I think, you know, they've already gerrymandered. There's already voter suppression efforts going on across the country. Voter ID laws are gonna make a difference. Um, you know, and if we don't win the house in 2018, by 2020, you'll need like a deed for a vote to prove that you should vote. So we, we don't win the house in 2018. You know, I don't know, Canada? <laughs> New Zealand, maybe. If we haven't invaded them yeah. by then. Yeah. So a, one more question, we're gonna talk about crooked media. Um, Master talked about fake news and, and bubbles. I checked uh, Breitbart and um, uh, Drudge this morning, no mention of Yemen. You can't find it. So uh, what do we do about the, the, we're fundamentally divided on this point. How do we, how do we address that? Yeah, I mean, piercing the, the right-wing media ecosystem is, very challenging. And um, I don't know, I think that there's a certain segment of the population that will not be convinced or persuaded because their news diet is Fox News, their news diet is Breitbart, and they have now come to believe that everything else is fake news because that's what they're told every day. But I don't think that represents in any way a majority of the country. I don't even think that represents a majority in the states you need to get 270 electoral votes or the states you need to get a majority in the House or the Senate. And so, I think, you know, at some point, it's not like we should ignore Fox and Breitbart and stuff like that, but um, look, there are a bunch of voters who didn't make up their mind in this election until the last couple weeks. And for those voters, it was, we don't like Donald Trump, we think he says crazy things, but we also don't like Hillary Clinton and we don't think she'll bring about change. So even though I really hate Donald Trump, maybe he's more likely to, to do something and shake things up. And those are the people, and those people are not just reading Breitbart every day and watching Fox every day. Those people have a probably a, a, a much more diverse news diet. And so I think those are the people that we have to reach out to and persuade in the in the coming years. Yeah, I mean the other thing too to keep in mind is, you know, this election, you know, the Democratic candidate got millions more votes. It was a in many ways a black swan event. There's a lot of big forces that made it possible, but it's really small things that made us that made this happen and put us, to, put us in the position of having this very difficult conversation. One of the things that continues to be true, even though we lost this election, is that there's a downside to having uh, your, the entirety of your base hearing a ton of news that is uh, either not true or deeply misleading. They come to believe certain things uh, very, they come to believe certain things that then your candidates have to parrot. Those things are not necessarily popular in the broader population. Those things don't necessarily lead to positive outcomes 
for the economy, for healthcare, for gay rights, for what have you, and it puts people like Paul Ryan and others in the position of advocating for deeply unpopular and dangerous policies, which is not a long-term positive electoral strategy. All right, so let, let's talk about what you guys are doing now. So, um, John Lovett, you came out to Hollywood about five years ago, got into the industry. John Favreau just came out a little while ago, and you guys started out together in this, in this era with a podcast on Bill Simmons' world. Can you talk about how that got started and, and what, what you're doing now? Yeah, um, so I, I had known Bill for a long time, and he, when he started The Ringer, he said, uh, you know, we want to come on to the podcast and talk about politics, because we want to get more into politics on The Ringer. So Dan Pfeiffer and I did his podcast, after that, he said, have you guys thought about hosting one yourselves about politics? We had never thought about that before. I had no idea I'd be able to host a podcast. But we basically just started having the conversation that we have with each other every day about politics. And, and then... Uh, I glommed on. And then Lovett glommed on. I'm a glommer. When he realized it was a huge success. And, uh, and Tommy Vitor. And so all four of us did this throughout the election. And, you know, we've been saying, I think if Hillary had won we would have remained uh, part-time podcasters. Um, because that didn't happen, you know, right at the, after the election, Lovett and Tommy and I got together and we sort of said, you know, how do we get back into the game? And it's too important to just sit I mean, we wept and we held each other. <laughs> and then we talked about how to get back in the game. <laughs> it was bad. It was a bad <laughs> night. Um, so, yeah, so we decided that we liked the tone of the podcast and that it was both informative and entertaining, that we tried to talk about politics like friends talk about politics. Um, but if we were gonna do something new, we wanted to make sure it was also activist in nature, right? And so we decided to form Crooked Media. You know, we started with by renaming our podcast uh, Pod Save America. And um, you know, our, our objective here is to both in, inform people to entertain people, but also to inspire activism, to make sure that when people read the news, that there's also something they can do about the news, right? Because I think sometimes today, you see all these headlines, you watch cable, and you just sort of feel helpless, right? Like, what can I do about this? And we want to, and we don't have all the answers ourselves at all, but we want to start helping people find those answers. And you've been at it with Crooked for just like a month or two now, right? You've got yeah. two of the top three news and politics podcasts in, in the App Store and then on iTunes. You just launched merchandise. Like, how do you think of it as a business on top of everything else you're trying to achieve? Um, Launching a media company is easy, the money rolls in. Um, so that's been surprising, because you hear a lot of people complaining about how to make money off of content. Not it's us. a fucking breeze. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> and that's it, it doesn't go beyond that. Um, <laughs> that's the no, so we, we, look, we had, we had hopes for how well the podcast would do when we launched, they've exceeded those expectations. Um, I think one of the bets we were making is not just that there was an appetite for a more authentic if left-leaning, but sort of intellectually honest conversation about politics, that there is also, I think, this profound alienation from political news amongst tens of millions of people and millions and millions and millions of young people. It is simply, it is a unsustainable and ridiculous situation we are in, in which everyone as a country hates the news. They hate the politics, but they hate the news too. They hate the way it's offered, it has managed to be both boring and insipid and sensationalistic and not informative. And that is not sustainable. And there is an incredible hunger for anything that's, that tries to do something different, that tries to just, you know, 
we, the news of today, from the New York Times to CNN to ABC to NBC, it is a tone of authority and seriousness that, that is from another era. And even though they lost the authority, and even though they lost the expertise, and even though they lost the seriousness, they kept the tone. And it's insulting, and it doesn't work. And what we are finding is that there are tons and tons of people who agree with that and just want something that's a little bit more honest and open, that's vulnerable and reasonable, and, um, you know, we're making money hand over fist. And I also... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Got to lighten it at the end. We have $100 in our account. Um, <laughs> no, so I also want to separate out, because uh, we use the shorthand, we say the media or news, and I, I think that there is outstanding reporting being done out there, and I think a lot of media organizations and news organizations are doing outstanding reporting. What we think is broken particularly is political analysis and political punditry, right? And aside from all the things Lovett says it is, it is also too insidery. It, it's, it's, it happens from DC, it comes from DC a lot. And, you know, talk about bubbles. That's not an ideological bubble, but it's certainly a bubble in all those people who are, who are doing punditry in DC are all talking to each other and it just comes off sort of bland, boring, and also not very informative. And so um, we wanted to talk about politics like you know, normal people talk about politics to each other. Yeah, I mean, I think we were, you know, frustrated both as, as people that were inside as political operatives, but also as, as news consumers. And you're exactly right, you know, there's incredible journalism every day. You know, there's great journalism on cable news, which everyone maligns. But overall, it's incredibly difficult to find out what happened today. Like, at the end of every day, it's like, yeah. wait, what happened? You know, you can't, there's no, you know, you'll see somebody tweet something, oh, you know, th just this morning, right, uh, there was a big alert that Trump lifted sanctions on the FSB in, uh, uh, at the Treasury Department. What's the FSB, love it? Uh, I don't know, it's the KGB that Trump, it's the new KGB. I don't know, it's, it's the thing that elected Trump. And the, um, uh, <laughs> eh. And, uh, um, but, but then you kind of dig deep and you're like, wait, wait, that's actually only $5,000. But wait, what is it? And you, it's, it's with this, we're all kind of, trying to get our news from this fire hose, and it is almost impossible to figure out what's important, what's not important, what really mattered, what didn't matter, who's telling the truth, you know, uh, uh, you know, what has happened before, right? What's a normal thing for a president to do that we didn't really talk about before because we're so worried that Trump is breaking all these norms and standards that we're not really sure, we're not really sure uh, uh, if this is something that Obama did or not. So, so we're, we're out of time, but I just want to end with one quick question. Um, what is the year President Trump leaves the White House? Oh, uh, I'm out of the prediction business. <laughs> yeah, I know. We did say that. I think 20, I mean, 2035. <laughs> I know whenever he, whenever he dies and he goes Let's up see. to heaven, according to the news. President Pence loses re-election in 2020. When the, white when the white fox is born and, and comes from the, and the winter and the sun rises. All right, love it. That's new, all the time we have for today. A new leader will come. I wish we had more time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.